Welcome into the EMA Online pregame podcast. Mason both Alec Bussey with you as we get set for K-State and Oklahoma to kick off Saturday night, 7 o'clock in Norman. The Wildcats have been successful over the last handful of trips to Norman. You go back to 2012 when they won there. They also got the win in 2014. And after not so glamorous performances in 16 and 18, they then won in 2020 on the back of Deuce Vaughn. That was kind of his coming out party and talking to him last night about what that game was like for him. He still has fond memories of it because that was the first game that he got a start in at K-State and everything that, that played out there and coming back from 21 to win on the road in Norman. And that may have also been the uh, first moment where Sooner fans started to scratch their head and say, yeah, the Spencer Rattler guy may not actually be the answer here. And uh, then Oklahoma went on to lose at Iowa State the next week as well. So it wasn't a hot start for the Sooners that season. They rebounded and they kicked the crud out of Florida in the Cotton Bowl uh, that year, though. So a lot of good memories for K-State as of late. And Norman, they also have the 2019 win in Manhattan, Chris Kleiman's first signature victory at K-State. They are going to Norman this week in similar circumstances to what they had in 2020, where they come off a loss to a group of five opponent that most people would have assumed that they should have won. So we will see if their response to losing to Tulane is similar to that of Arkansas State. And Alec, we've talked about throughout the course of this last week uh, a lot about the Tulane game and some of the issues that stem from it. And obviously the biggest one uh, comes down to Adrian Martinez and Colin Klein and what the situation with the offense is. But I want to start in a different spot. And I, I wrote about this earlier in the week. I thought it was a little unique. Were you surprised at all that the very first thing that Chris Kleiman criticized on Tuesday was the defense and special teams in the two-lane game? Or did you even pick that up, that that was the first thing he pointed out in his opening statement? Um, I don't know if I – I mean, I obviously was there and was listening to it. I don't know if I would say I picked it up or took extreme notice of it. Um, I think my biggest takeaway from his press conference on Monday was probably – or his press conference on Tuesday was probably the – bluntness of the word choice he used when talking about Adrian Martinez and saying he needs to cut it loose and that he swung too far towards being conservative. Normally you don't hear head coaches publicly say those things about players. Um, certainly they don't say those kind of things about their fellow coaches on the staff, but it was odd to me to see him so publicly say, yeah, Adrian needs to be better. Yeah. Adrian needs to be more aggressive. He needs to be, looking to throw the ball downfield a little bit more where, you know, he didn't really say a lot of things that were non-complimentary of what Colin Klein called on the Saturday against Tulane. Um, and I found that a little bit interesting, I guess you can kind of say, just because there was certainly blame that I think fell on both of their shoulders for the way the offense played. And certainly it falls off, falls across the entire offense. I mean, the offensive line didn't block very well. And then the receivers struggled to get open a few different times in key moments. But yeah, I feel like my biggest takeaway was he just blatantly put more of the blame on Adrian Martinez than he did on Colin Klein. Well, yeah. And I, I think that that shows where his mind is at and, and certainly where he thinks uh, the, the biggest question mark is for the team right now and how they get it sorted out. And I think, that is now that we know this, that's probably why he's been so outward and public about kind of challenging Adrian Martinez, I guess would be the way that I would phrase it. I think he knows what they need to have happen. And he feels like one of the ways to get 
Um, kind of a, a kick to the backside of Martinez is to try and, you know, get, call him out publicly and, and put a little bit more pressure on him there in that sense. Um, I, like, I think there's already enough pressure on Adrian Martinez, and I think that's why they are in this situation right now. There was so much pressure on him with things that went on at Nebraska and everything else that, and I've said it multiple times and I'll continue to say it. I think there is this mental block that he's trying to find a way around. And right now he's just, he, he can't do it. And he's going to have to get over that for K-State to be in a better position moving forward with their offense. But real quick, here's, here was the quote from Chris Kleiman and what he said. Uh, he said, the bottom line was we didn't execute well enough really in all three phases. Starting with the defense, we played really good at times on defense, and that game we needed to play great. You're going to get into low-scoring games. You're going to get into high-scoring games. You've got to find a way to stop them at a critical time. They beat us on explosive plays, and unfortunately for us, some of their explosive plays were on their scoring drives. Did you come out of that game thinking that the K-State defense did not play great? I mean, I thought that they played close to it, I thought they got stops and takeaways when they really needed it. Daniel Green was pretty big uh, in, in both interceptions they came away with. So I was a little surprised by that. But it, you would maybe not know this, but he did something very similar to this last year when K-State played Baylor in Manhattan. And Baylor had one of their worst offensive games of the season against K-State. And instead, it started off by talking about the defense and how they needed to do this or that before going to the offense. So I don't know how to describe it. I mean, Chris Kleiman's a defensive coach, defensive background and everything. Why would you think that in a game where it seems so obvious that the offense had the problems that he would go to defense and special teams first? I think you can kind of look at it in a couple of different ways. The first being you want to deflect where most of the attention is being placed, obviously, which is at the feet of the offense and the struggles they've had through the first three games. But then also, I think you kind of said it pretty well there with the fact that he's a defensive guy and defensive coaches tend to always kind of take the blame for things when they lose because, you know, their goal every game is to not allow the other team to score. And if you do that, you're probably going to win, right? Like if you don't allow the other team in the end zone and you pitch a shutout, you're probably going to win most games unless, you know, there's pick six, whatever, and your offense doesn't score. But I think that that's just kind of how defensive coaches are minded. And obviously that's what Kleiman's rooted in and that's where his – foundation is as a football coach is on the defensive side of the ball so maybe that's what it is I don't know I I think that coaches publicly say things to needle sometimes and other times they just say things to say things and I haven't figured out completely yet what exactly Chris Kyman's strategy is for certain things that he says publicly yeah I mean I, I well I think this season's so unique and different right now with the the issues that they're they're trying to get sorted out and what the offense is ultimately going to, to look like is in your opinion, is Oklahoma the, the type of game? Cause I I've said, I think this is actually a good opportunity for them to try and break whatever problem they're having offensively. Cause you're probably going to be playing from behind in this game. So you're going to be forced to throw the ball a little bit more. There's not going to be a whole lot of time to sit back and, and try and be perfect with everything you do. You're just going to have to go out and try and make plays. Yeah, I mean, I wrote in the preview, which isn't published yet, that I think that Oklahoma is going to end up taking a lead at some point and Kansas State's going to fall behind at some point, whether that's a couple scores, whether that's just a field goal or a touchdown and they're in the game remains to be seen, right? But you're not going to beat Oklahoma if you don't effectively throw the football. I mean, they they have too much talent on their defensive line. They have too much ability across the linebacker position and outside to 
routinely just line the ball up and run it with Deuce Vaughn. You're just not going to beat Oklahoma. You're not going to beat teams that have supreme, supremely more talent than Kansas State does. So they're going to have to find ways to be creative offensively to move the ball down the field and not only move the ball down the field, but more importantly, capitalize on opportunities when they get in the red zone for touchdowns. And I think a lot of that does depend on Adrian Martinez's ability to get the ball in the end zone effectively through the air. He only has one touchdown pass through the first three weeks of the season. And I understand the situation of the first two weeks where they didn't throw the ball at all against South Dakota in the second half. And it was pouring rain against Missouri in the second half and that entire game. But what we've seen of him and what we've seen of the wide receivers throughout the first three weeks, quite frankly, it just hasn't been enough. And they need to do something to jumpstart those groups. And I don't want to just keep repeating myself, but it, it it's important for them to just hit on easy passes, I think. And then you can kind of just open up the playbook and things will start to flow a little bit better in the passing game. And Colin Klein talked about the importance of finding a rhythm and hitting on the simple things and holding blocks and all of those different things. And when you do that, things on offense just seem to kind of fall into place in the passing game. Well, we'll see kind of what they, they do and, and what the strategy and attack ends up being uh, this this weekend against Oklahoma. I, I would agree that I think that there are some things that can be done in the passing game to maybe make things a little bit easier and set some things up. But I also uh, understand that there needs to be a little bit more willingness of other guys to step up. It, one of the, I think, concerning things is that the receivers haven't played particularly well this year or they haven't stood out, and we've really only seen three of them primarily, and none of the other guys behind those three really seem to be in a position to step up and get in there. Uh, and that's not just a concern for how this season will continue on because you're not going to have really any additional help. What the receivers are right now is what the receivers are probably going to be, but it also kind of highlights an issue that K-State's going to have moving forward over the next couple of seasons, because if there's nobody on this roster right now, that's challenging for a, a spot to get out there and see significant reps um, that that's a little concerning with, with how things are going. So I, I don't know how they're going to do it because at, at that point you may be asking Colin Klein to do a lot to where he's having to manage the, the psyche of a quarterback, but also call a perfect game basically to set up his receivers and also in turn, uh, do things to make sure things go pretty perfectly for uh, for Deuce Vaughn to get his touches and put him in a position to to be able to to do some good things with the football. Was there anything else from uh, Chris Kleiman this week that stood out to you when he spoke? I mean, obviously the quarterback situation is uh, the the most pertinent to everybody, but was there anything else that maybe went under the radar that you thought was significant that he he touched on Tuesday? No, not particularly. I guess there's one thing that Coach Klinerman said on Thursday that's maybe a little bit more of interest to me is he kind of took some of the onus on himself of the importance of disguising coverages against Oklahoma this weekend and how it's on him to do that, but also at the same time how difficult it's going to be for them to effectively substitute because of how fast Oklahoma's offense likes to function in the entire game. I mean, they like to get to the line, and then that allows Dylan Gabriel to just kind of examine what the opposing defense is set up as they may not snap it until there's 15, 20 seconds left on the play clock, maybe even less, but they're going to get to the line as quick as they can. And that's a trend that we've seen become pretty popular in college football. And coach Klanerman said, you know, it, they're going to do that. And that makes it really tough on us to substitute, but they seem to have a plan for how they're going to do that. They've been practicing that a couple times this week. He said, and you know, I am I'm interested to see how Kansas state does that on, on Saturday. 
the the K-State defense has been really good this year. I think has surprised pretty much everybody that that didn't have high expectations for him coming into this season. You talk about Coach Klanderman and and what he thinks that he needs to do to to get the team in a better spot against Oklahoma. Is there anything – through three games that you think the K-State defense could approve upon? Like, I, I think one of the, like, nitpicky type things that I have is, I, and this is, I think, everybody that watches football, uh, when teams get close to getting to the quarterback but can't complete the play. So, like, my thing would be get, get like, an extra sack or sack and a half a game and, and, you know, something along those lines to where you're actually finishing the defensive play when you get to the quarterback. But – for the most part, like I don't have any complaints about how the K-State defense has been so far. Is there anything that, that st- sticks out to you there? Yeah, maybe there's one or two. I mean, I feel like they've had a few silly penalties here and there where they've jumped off sides or they've gotten called for, um, you know, that new rule, that illegal block rule where defensive players can't go at the legs of offensive linemen from that angle. It's a player safety rule that they kind of put in place or are really trying to start calling this year. Just minor things like that where you clean that stuff up and you're not any longer giving away free yards and I don't really expect that to continue to be a struggle especially because it's an experienced front seven so I feel like you're not well I guess it's really a three five five defense so it's really a front eight I guess you could say but that front eight group is isn't super young there are players there who have kind of played throughout the last couple years so I don't really expect the offsides to remain an issue here Thinking about uh, what they will face in this Oklahoma offense, you kind of took a look at at what they did to Nebraska over the weekend, which was a a pretty significant performance. They they put them away and they left zero doubt. Which uh, some um, some people were in on Nebraska. They thought that they'd be able to to keep things interesting there. What did you see from the Oklahoma offense, and what is going to give K State struggles? Yeah, so I want to give a lot of credit to Joel Klatt for actually kind of pointing this out and in some content of his that I observed this week. He started a new podcast this week, and he broke down what makes the Oklahoma offense tick. And essentially, it's all just observing where opposing safeties are lined up. And against Nebraska, they were routinely lining up with one safety in the box and one safety deep. And when there's one safety in the box – um, Oklahoma doesn't have enough people to block in the run game. And they've transitioned to a zone run scheme in the past under, under Lincoln Riley. They were a gap scheme. So now their running backs have more freedom to run in the direction that they want to run and what the play allows. Whereas with the gap scheme, right, you're allowing, you're designing certain gaps for the tailbacks to run through. But in the passing game, what he's doing and what the Bryles offense, which is what Jeff Lebby, the Oklahoma offensive coordinator, is kind of basing everything off of, is one-on-one matchups and RPOs. When there's one safety in the box, that means that the four wide receivers on the outside are all in one-on-one man-to-man coverage in most situations. And that allows Dylan Gabriel to just throw bullets all over the field to the receivers that are in one-on-one coverage. And they tend to just be quick hitting passes before hitting the deep shot later in the game. And when you've got corners who are in one-on-one coverage for most of the game, it's not going to bode well. I don't care who you are. I don't care who your defensive backs are. Corners can tend tend to only hold coverage for about three or four seconds at most. And that's why the Bryles offense has become so popular. And coach Klanderman kind of explained it yesterday. I point blatantly asked him, I was like, what is it about that offensive scheme that's become really popular and really difficult for defenses to stop? And he pretty bluntly said that 
it works so well because it's so simple. And because once you get a quarterback that understands it so well that it works really, really well, this was his exact quote. It was because they're never wrong. If the quarterback is doing a good job, I don't know if those guys go home at six o'clock or what he's speaking about the coaching staff at Oklahoma, but it's just putting the ball in the quarterback's hands because he's got a favorable box to run. They'll run it and they should gain yards. If they don't, they'll get one-on-ones all over the place. So we'll have to go. So we'll have to go about that. It's an incredible offense because it's so simple, but it's also incredibly effective. Right. And I feel like that's kind of how offenses have trended over the last decade. It's why make things complicated for quarterbacks to read when they look at a defense, when, if it's simple and you just see, all right, one-on-one coverage there, 15-yard completion. One-on-one coverage over there, there's a 10-yard completion. And I'm really interested to see how Kansas State combats that. And I, in my opinion, it all comes down to just disguising coverages and moving safeties and moving your linebackers all over the field and bringing one of them up into the box and then dropping them back into coverage. You're just trying to trick Dylan Gabriel into – throwing the ball where he's not supposed to throw it from what I understand. Thinking about kind of where, where things are going to, to end up uh, with Oklahoma throughout the rest of this season. I, I said when they hired Venables, I thought that there were, there were two ways that this was going to play out. I, I didn't think it was going to just keep going down the same path that Lincoln Riley had it going. I thought it was either going to go to one side, which would have been negative, which means, oh, you would have dropped off to being you know an eight-win team every year or less than that, or this thing was really going to work out and they were going to elevate themselves to being not just a team that every couple of years was in the playoff and then got beat by 30 by whoever was out of the SEC, but could be a team that was the real deal. Do you feel like at this point, from what you've seen this year, that this Oklahoma team is different from a – I guess, like, relative to the top of college football, are they different than what they had been under Lincoln Riley, where they were one of the 10 best teams in the country, but they certainly weren't one of those teams that was going to actually be able to handle one of the top two or three teams? Are are they getting closer to that point? I think so, but I also think they haven't really played a great team yet. I think Nebraska is one of the three worst, Power Five, maybe not three worst, Colorado's up there, obviously. Nebraska is one of the worst power five teams. So the competition level they've played obviously isn't great. Now that's not anything you can hold against what they've done. They've obviously beaten Kent state 33 to three. They've handled UTEP in week one, but to me, why I think there's reason to believe in what Oklahoma could be doing long-term here with Brent Venables is that their defense is bigger than it's been in the past. And it's more physical and it's also got the speed on the outside and, We know how aggressive Brent Venables is as a defensive coach because of all of his time at Clemson and how much success he had there under Dabo Sweeney. And yeah, I I do think that there's reasons to believe that Oklahoma could be trending in a similar direction, potentially better direction than where they were under Lincoln Riley. Now I have a ton of respect for Lincoln Riley and I think he's going to make USC one of the better programs in the country over a year over year basis. But I do think there's reasons to believe in what Brent Venables is doing at Oklahoma. And my biggest concern would just be, can they continue the offensive production under Lincoln Riley? Because if they can continue that offensive production like they've shown over the first three weeks with Jeff Lebby now leading the offense, yeah, that's kind of scary to think about because we know how good of a defensive coach Brent Venables is. So if you bring that same kind of defensive standard over from Clemson to Oklahoma – and you maintain a similar level of offensive production, that's kind of a scary thought to think about how 
potent that could be for opponents, not just in the Big 12 and eventually in the SEC, but on a national level if you're Oklahoma. Yeah, I think I actually think that Oklahoma and Lincoln Riley both won in this situation. I think Lincoln Riley makes USC better. I think that his future uh, is probably better off at USC. And I think for Oklahoma, I think that they can reach uh, greater heights with Brent Venables there and not Lincoln Riley. So I, I think too, they both won out. The thing, too, with Oklahoma is that outside of like the 90s, Oklahoma has been one of the, probably the two or three best programs since the 50s. They've never really had a downtrodden time. I mean, them and Ohio State have never really been bad for an extended period of time. Like, even Alabama has struggled at times since the 1950s. You look at the 90s, early 2000s until Saban got there, right? Like, Bama wasn't really turning out a ton of success. Michigan's obviously fallen on tough times. Now they're kind of climbing back up here a little bit, obviously, right? But, you know, the Rich Rod era, the Brady Hoke era didn't go well for them. Oklahoma's kind of always just been really, really steady. And it's obviously because there's a ton of alignment there and everyone seems to be pointing in the same direction. But yeah, I agree with you, Mason. I just think that Oklahoma's a program that, for whatever reason, just always seems to be good. Like, I don't think they're ever not going to win more than 10 games. Now, maybe yeah. going to the SEC, things will get different and obviously it'll be a higher level of competition and they may struggle to win 10 games on a year over year basis. But I have no reason to believe that Oklahoma's not going to be one of the five six best programs in a 16 team sec yeah no i i think i think oklahoma is going to be in, in a good spot still like i they they make sense like they are ready to play in the sec they are the caliber of team that can go there and i mean obviously they're not yet there yet but as we have seen with the texas a&m situation like your recruiting will take a big bump for joining the sec yeah. And they will be ready to compete with LSU and Alabama and Georgia and whoever else it may be that, that thinks that I need to pay attention to them. But I, I think that it's it, they're in a good spot right now, and, and that's kind of what makes them um, impressive in a way because, like you said, only a handful of schools have actually been able to go through periods without a drop-off. I mean, look at even some of these schools that are kind of like all-time historic college football programs – that even right now have had drop-offs as of recently to where they're firing coaches left and right, and we haven't had to worry about them. I mean, like Florida State and Florida have both ripped through coaches now over the last close to 10 years, really. I mean, it, we're getting close to 10 years ago from when, uh, well, what, what would it be? Yeah, yeah we were nine years removed from Florida State winning that national championship with Jameis Winston. They went to the playoff the year later, got their butt kicked by Oregon, and then ever since then, things have kind of started to trend downward. And things and, seem to be going better there with Mike Norvell this season. Yeah, I, that, and that's that's kind of a weird one. There's some there's some oddities with uh, college football. I'm ready to get past just three games of a sample size so we can understand what's real and what's not, Kansas. So I'm ready well, that's to kind what of see. I'm really I think that weeks four, five, six, and if you want to extend it to week seven of the college football season are some of the best every single year because you're no longer filling the schedule every weekend or filling the weekend slate every year with a whole bunch of non-conference games against lowly opponents for power five schools. And these few weeks are really like prove it weeks for a lot of people. I think a lot of people are kind of hopping on the Oklahoma bandwagon right now. Right. And I think this is a good pertinent example for us to use, but 
I texted you and I texted Gabe earlier this week, right between Oklahoma, USC, and Clemson. Which of those three schools would you feel most comfortable picking to be the fourth team in a playoff right now behind, obviously, Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State? But I think that... And then I said USC and Gabe uh, was a Pac-12 truther and was like, ah, I don't know, Pac-12 is tougher than that. I said I'm on USC right now, but they haven't played anyone very good yet. And well, I, don't, I don't think they're going to really have to play all that many good teams this year. Well, I disagree. I think the Pac-12 is kind of good. Utah. I don't, I, but are that like Oregon kind of surprised me that Oregon was able to go out and beat BYU the way they did. But and I get I mean, that Oregon Georgia State's not bad. But, like I think this um, weekend but, for Oregon State and USC is actually a really interesting matchup. It's on the road. It's in Corvallis. That's a difficult place for. USC historically to go yeah. play. I'm not saying I think USC the, the Rogers brothers aren't walking through that door. I'm Sean, not saying I think USC is not their walking through that door. Isn't good. Their defense is awful. It's probably in the 10th, 11th, 12th tier of the Pac-12. And yeah, they may go put up 40, 50 points against the Beavers this weekend. But I guess where I'm going with this is these weeks of the season are prove it weeks, and I think we can focus this on the Big 12 for a lot of schools i think oklahoma needs to prove what a lot of people are kind of starting to take notice of again it's like all right oklahoma's been really impressive through the first three weeks what they did to nebraska was put the nation on notice for a better for lack of a better term and now they get to play a kansas state team who a lot of people were really high on coming into the year but took a tough loss to tulane by all measures texas people have started to get high on because of the way they played against alabama because of the way they rebounded in the second half after a tough first half against UTSA last week. It's time for a program, like you said, Kansas. They played Duke this week. I mean, a battle between two 3-0 and programs, and Kansas is receiving votes in the AP Top 25. Yeah, that one That one we can kind of cool our jets on. Like I, I said earlier in, in, in the week, I, I went on uh, a radio show here in Wichita, and, and they were kind of talking to me about what I thought about Kansas. And look, the, uh, the K-State alum uh, inside of me, I hate seeing KU be good at football. It's fun when your rival is the worst team in college football. That is a really fun experience to have. And and it's not even just the fact that, like, that's the part about it that's tough. It's the fact that take somebody that's my age, for example. I'm 24 years old. In my lifetime, K-State has only lost to KU four times. I mean, that's that's a pretty insane number right there. So for 24 years – I've seen K-State win 20 of the 24 matchups that have been played by these teams. And so you think like that, it's a weird, it's a weird dynamic, but I did say this, like KU people have your fun and you deserve to have it right now. Like you should be able to live it up, do what you you can. It's a sellout crowd this weekend. That, that school deserves all the credit in the world for what they did to get Lance Leipold. He's a phenomenal coach. I've thought he's a great guy when I've been able to talk to him. Like there are a lot of things there that they deserve to have their fun in the sun, but we do need to slow down. They're not, they are, they should not be getting top 25 votes right now uh, because they haven't really played anybody yet. If you go and look at it, I think from going back to last year and these games where they've started to kind of up their play um, or at least the offense has, because there's no doubt they've got a, a really good offense right now relative to what it's been and an offense that can challenge a lot of teams in the big 12, but all these teams that they've played and had success against are, I think, outside of the. the I th- this is uh, fed to me by uh, good good friend Cole Manbeck. He said that n- I think KU is in a spot where 
all these opponents they've played have been outside the top 90 in points per drive recently. So they have not played the greatest of defenses, and they don't have a great defense themselves, but they do deserve credit for what they've done. We'll see what happens. I I really don't know that we're going to get anything out of the Duke game because Duke is kind of in a similar position. Like They've played an odd kind of weak schedule. They're on this trend of trying to find their way up. I mean, their signature win is a road game at Northwestern, and, and Northwestern I don't think is very good. So we'll see how this weekend goes for for them. But they deserve to have as much fun as they they can right now. Live it up. I it's I think they beat story. Duke. I think they're going to be four and zero. And at that point, like I have a I have a tough time seeing them not being able to make it to a bowl game this year. I'm dead serious when I say that. Like, and, and maybe some K State people listening will think that's insane, but I think they are better as it stands right now than Tech and TCU, probably. Um, I'm not sold on either of those. And, like, this is a big weekend for those two schools with new coaches because TCU, they have to try and avoid the embarrassment of going on the road and losing to SMU, which we all three of us picked SMU this week. We all think that SMU is probably going to get the job done. Because I, I think that SMU, like, if you look at it, Obviously, both had to change coaches because TCU took SMU's coach, but SMU still has all the talent there. You know, like SMU still has Mordecai. They still have Siggers at running back. Like they still have guys that can get the job done. I'm just not sold on the TCU talent yet. So this is kind of a prove it weekend for them. And then for Texas Tech, like Texas is coming to town and you don't have to win the game, but very similar to what K State has in, in going to Norman this weekend. If you keep things close and it's a competitive game, then the mindset around you changes for the rest of the season. And, and that's what a lot of these teams are in a position and have to try and figure out what to do in the Big 12 this, this week is if you're playing, go out and prove yourself one way or the other. Yeah, and that's what I think I view these three weeks as is this is when you really kind of get an understanding of how good teams really are and what you could really expect to see. And you get an understanding of what a true big upset is and what a true big upset is not. And that's why I really love these three weeks of the season. And, you know, if you're Kansas State, you get a great opportunity to right the ship against Oklahoma. You get an opportunity to start 1-0 in Big 12 play if you're able to go on the road and get a big marquee upset win. And I think you and I both said this. I know players said this. I'm pretty sure coaches said this. All of Kansas State's goals essentially are all still in front of them. At least all the realistic goals. I mean, I don't really think people in Kansas State circles are expecting them to go compete for a college ball playoff berth no. or a national championship no. this year. Like, those are probably gone. But losing to Tulane doesn't affect your chances at going to Dallas or Fort Worth, wherever, Arlington. Mm. There you go. You got it on the third try. There we go. Knock, knock the third one out of the park. Um, you know, that that's on the table, right? Like, you still have your rivalry games on the table that you can still go in. And I think you get an opportunity now to just clean slate everything and go into big 12 play and see if you can figure things out. Well, obviously the, the biggest part of that is the offense has to do something different. We talked about the defense and obviously we talked after the Tulane game about the struggles uh, that, that have gone on there offensively and trying to figure things out. I, I continue to go back to, I just think that there is, a, a mental hurdle that Adrian Martinez has to find a way to get over. And like, I, I think that you have to try everything you can as a coaching staff to try and get him over it. And that's why I think part of it has been the, the Chris Kleiman 
publicly challenging him this week a little bit by just, I mean, he didn't directly say like Adrian needs to, to pick it up, but he has kind of hinted at things a lot. And there's been a certain tone to his voice when he's spoken about it to where it's kind of, if you're Adrian Martinez, you hear that and go, okay, uh, I mean, coach is looking at me to do something here. So I, I think we'll see what happens this weekend. Do do you think that there is any way that the K-State offense gets right this weekend against OU, or is that going to be too difficult of a matchup for them to, to do it against this week? What's your definition of get right? I mean, <laughs> a throw – I mean, if, I, I think, I think you'll know yards. it when you see it. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a start. Like They had two of them last week. It's a uh, – I would say – I mean – Scoring 20 points against Oklahoma would be a start if you could get to the 20 point mark and and just feel like you're you're in the game and you're making plays to keep yourself competitive. Whereas, like, I think one of the numbers to watch for is how many three and outs does K State end up having in in the game this week against Oklahoma. Like, I could see a world where, although I think K State keeps it close or at least trying to be as optimistic as possible. But I could also see a world where K-State goes there, first drive of the game, boom, three and out. They punt it to Oklahoma. Oklahoma charges down the field. They go up 7 nothing. K-State gets the ball back, and it's like a two-yard run for Deuce Vaughn. And then they try doing the same thing again. He gets plugged up. They have to throw on third and long. Pass does not work out. Punt again, and then Oklahoma's boom right back down the field. And, and that's the thing that I am I would be worried about with K-State. So I think you, it, we're, three and outs is going to be a big thing to watch because you're starting to play better competition that if the passing game isn't there and the offense isn't working in some good way, then you're not going to have a whole lot of plays that you're able to run. So I think that's one area to, to, to kind of pay attention to. But I think it's going to be more of a feel thing. I don't think there's a tangible number that has to be put up to tell us that the K-State offense is right. I think it's going to be one of those things that – uh, like when when you see it, you will know it. And if you don't see it, then you will have known that you didn't see it. And, and that will kind of set the stage for Texas Tech next week, which is going to be a significant game. Because like I think that with the way things go after the Tulane game, depending on how things play out, like I would be worried that the Texas Tech game now becomes arguably the biggest game of the season for K-State. I just think that if you're Kansas State, like, with the offense. What what were the expectations coming into the year? Um, I mean, I I mean, as someone who not to look like that late, against right, Tulane, like, I like, that's to, the thing. I, I kind of str- as someone who came in late, I struggled to kind of grasp what they expected coming into the year. Like obviously you expected Deuce Vaughn to have a really good year running the ball. I mean, he's a preseason all American and he's obviously been impressive to start the year, right? I mean, that's clear and obvious but I don't know what the expectation was for Adrian Martinez I mean certainly it wasn't this because he doesn't look like the same player that he was in Nebraska and I to me like I don't know if it's him with buying into it or if it's the coaching staff feeding this idea that you can't turn the ball over but See that it doesn't seem to me like that's the case because but publicly of, they're not the going to say that. The the way they've said it this week, like it's a hey, cut it loose, or I don't know, like you know, I don't I don't know why there's a reluctancy to throw the ball down the field. Like I I don't think that he came in and they said, hey, 
cut the crap with the turnovers. Like I think they just had him come in and they, they were trying to teach him how to maybe be a smarter player or like, I, I really think the, the right approach and I don't know how they, they did it, but it should have been, we believe in your ability. We're just going to put you in a system here where we believe in ourselves as coaches and the other guys we're going to put around you. And that should be enough to fix a lot of your problems. Like a lot of the problems that he had at Nebraska were because of Nebraska. Like, I don't think that they were because of Adrian Martinez. The problem is that when you go through that for four years, you start to think that you are the problem. And then it doesn't help that you probably had a head coach that I don't think was very nice to Adrian Martinez. And then you had a fan base that also certainly was not very nice to Adrian Martinez. And all of that stuff starts going into your head and it gets really tough to where when you get out there, you're overthinking everything that you do and you're trying to play perfect and not make a mistake. And I think that's what they have to try and stress to, to Adrian Martinez and get him over this hump and say, a perfect game doesn't mean that you have zero interceptions and zero fumbles. A perfect game looks like, you know, you, you eclipse the 200-yard passing mark, you make plays in the passing game when we need you to, you take the right shots, you make the right reads, all of this stuff. And that's what I think that they're trying, they're going to have to try and figure out. And we'll see if this week has, has made any difference. And if maybe the two-lane game was a wake-up call for him. And maybe it's a good thing that uh, the two-lane game happened. It's a non-conference game. And like you said, K-State was not going to be a college football playoff team. So a loss in the non-conference really doesn't mean anything to K-State's season. It's frustrating. It, it probably makes you, you know, an eight or a seven-win team at the end of the season instead of a, a nine-win team or whatever it may be. But it doesn't really do anything to your goals. So maybe that was the right kind of wake-up call and they needed that. But I... I we've talked about it so much. There's just not a whole lot more to, to say and do until we actually see how K-State's offense looks on, on Saturday night, because we can't, we can't accurately assess blame on Colin Klein. I think until we see Adrian Martinez change some of the ways that he has played over the first three weeks of the season. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, there's nothing more to add to the offense. Yeah, I think I think we're just in a in wait and see mode, and I mean, it's we're frustrating. The same things we said for a week. Yeah, I mean we're we're sitting here, we're thirty hours as we're recording this, we're thirty hours away from kickoff, and like I wish we could we could have the answer now, but we don't. But technically, math, it would be twenty nine hours and forty seven minutes away from kickoff, uh, since it's one thirteen as I'm saying this. Even better math. Yeah. Uh, real quick on the football side, we touched a little bit on some of the stuff going on this weekend in the Big 12 because there are so many teams that are going to be in a position that uh, they kind of get to prove themselves this week. A uh, little update real quick on the EMA online staff picks. We, we make these against the spread every week since it is now legal to uh, bet in the state of Kansas. And I would like to point out that uh, after another successful week, I have taken my lead back from Gabe. And uh, you're still bringing up the rear. You're not. You're above 500. You're doing fine. Okay. But you, you've got some. You got some work to do right now. Because Gabe and I, we look like sharp, like sharps right now. We know what we're doing here. You know. Okay. I'm not even. I came into this. I feel like if you're picking games against the spread on a weekly basis, you're picking, you know, five, six games a week against the spread. If you're over 500 through the first three weeks of a season. You're doing really well. Yes, you are. Because the first three weeks of the college football season are crapshoot. We don't know what any of these teams are really going to be. But apparently you two 
need to quit your day jobs and go be professional gamblers in Las mm-hmm. Vegas because you guys are just kicking ass. The problem is I don't have I don't have the stones to actually follow through and put money on any of the picks that I've actually made uh, over the courses. Like last week, I should have done the math how much I would have won had I just put like ten dollars on every game I picked last week. By the way, K State and Tulane was the only game I got wrong last week. So um, shout out to the Cats for. I mean, I'm 14 and 11 and one. That's That's good. good. That's good. But I'm four games back. What are we doing here? You're on a good pace right now. You know what I will say that I do feel confident about myself. As someone who's been like picking games for friends in college football for the past couple of years, I've been that person. Generally, right? Like with college football, you, I remember vividly the start of the 2020 season. My buddies had just gotten into gambling in Illinois because it was legal and they had just turned 21. And they were asking me for picks, and I started the year, and I was I was hitting on all cylinders. I had a you know an eight in one week like you did, and then I think it was like week three, week four. I did not have a good week. I was you know three, four, or five games under five hundred. Missed on a lot of the eleven o'clock games that are like we're never coming to you ever again. I'm like, you guys got to realize how this works, okay? You can't just ride with the highs. You got to ride with the highs and the lows and hope it averages out well. So your highs are real good right now, Mason, but I feel like you might have a low coming in here. Oh, I will. At some point. And it's a long season. It's a long season. It and is. if you've got a bad week coming in here at some point, then I feel like I can make a charge because I'm riding steady. I've been a couple games over 500 every week. So last year um, on, on the radio show I was on, uh, we did picks each and every week and we – during the regular season, we did 10 games, five NFL, five college. I finished the season at 105, 90, and one. Okay, that's so really good. That's a lot of losses in there, though. I mean, I have 15 over 500, but that, that won me out of the three other guys that I was picking against. Uh, during those stretches, I had some, I had some solid weeks uh, tossed in there. I'm looking at it now. Uh, for the first bowl or the second bowl week of the season, I went eight and two. Um, so that was that was pretty solid, but some of that was anchored by like NFL games. So my college picking has not been the best over the years. I think having done this now the last two years, where I'm having to make picks on a regular basis, um, has has gotten me into a position where I'm a little bit smarter with the way that I view college football and how it operates. Because I've I've struggled at times in the past. Uh, I just well, saw I, had a, I had a nine and one week last year as well. Uh, so that was pretty good. Well, and what I'm scared about with the Big 12 is that it seems to be so closely matched that we're going to end up getting games that are all, you know, three and a half to seven and a half point spreads. And those become real hard to pick because that's where a whole bunch of upsets, outright upsets happen. Yeah, no, it's it's going to get it's going to get a lo- little bit tighter, a little bit more interesting. Uh, so if you want to check out all of our picks for, from this week, you can go over to Ema online and uh, check out the picks. I also have the standings up there and a very nice handy dandy chart for everybody to look at uh, and see. That I am 18, 7 and 1, 8 and 1 last week. <laughs> Gabe, uh, he faltered a little bit, 16, 9 and 1, 4 and 5 last week. And then Alec is 14, 11 and 1. Uh, the pick I'm most proud of last week was Oklahoma State minus 54 and a half. So that was a that was a big get for me since you both were like, there's no way I would go against the number that big. I so. just feel like the problem is that we seem to all have a lot of group think. Yeah, uh, in some ways, I'm looking at it now. Uh, that's one game. That is two games. 
Um, we got like two we games play. this week where we all three picked them, uh, the same team. And then there are, I mean, and then as you would expect, uh, because there's no other way to make it happen. And obviously everything else two were at least the same with everything. Um, so we'll see how it ends up working out this weekend, but the, the little tease for everybody, um, we did not all pick the same in the K state, Oklahoma matchup. So, uh, there are some differing opinions there. Uh, more likely than not, that's a spot where I drop it one way or the other. I could have made either pick there and, uh, the, the football gods would have gone against me. So I just had to throw something out there to, to keep people happy. I think. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, real quick before we finish things up here, we'll have a, a little bit of a deeper look at everything uh, in, in the near future. But K State had the Big Twelve non or the Big Twelve conference schedule for basketball release today, and we knew kind of what the the non conference looked like. We now know that the first Big Twelve game for Jerome Tang will be New Year's Eve against West Virginia in Bramlage Coliseum. There's not a start time for that game yet, though, which New Year's Eve, that's dangerous. Uh, would you rather have a night game on New Year's Eve or a day game on New Year's Eve? It'll be like a 1 o'clock start. What time is the game? Or what what day of the week is New Year's Eve? It's a, it's a Saturday. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. America's going to burn down. <laughs> it's like a double whammy right there. Uh, yeah, it'll be like a 1, 2, 3 o'clock start, I bet. Well, we'll see uh, how it is goes. This the year that, are they doing college football playoff games on New Year's Eve this year? Uh, I don't remember. There was so a couple. Of I really hope ago, they're not because um, that's so stupid when, when they do when that. Oklahoma and Georgia played in the Rose Bowl. Now these this was New Year's Day. K State and West Virginia started the Big Twelve season in Manhattan against each other. Um, because I remember on my way home from Manhattan uh, that night because it was Christmas break, so I think I was going back to my parents' house. Uh, it was it was. Oklahoma and in Georgia in the Rose Bowl plan. So I don't know. I'll have to see uh, what the college football playoff schedule is this time around because that would be dumb if that's uh, how it worked out. But they also probably they wouldn't play it on a Sunday this year. They're not going to take away from like the NFL. They'd be that's smarter true. than that. So that's true. yeah, so I think we are looking at a New Year's Eve uh, matchup this year. Darn. I don't Darn. know. I've, I've got. I'm I'm on their website now, so I don't know that. That's going to help me out all that much. We'll Um, have to see it later in the year. Okay, I got got it figured out here right now. Uh, Yes, we are looking at – oh, no. Hey, hang on. Um, Oh, well, this – never never mind. This does not help me at all. (laughs) Um, This is great podcasting. Yeah, no, I know. It's – this is is flying by the seat of my pants right now. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, December 31st is uh, is when the, the playoff semifinals are. Darn. So, well, yes, Peach Bowl this year. You know what that makes me think? That makes me think the game against West Virginia is going to be at like 11 o'clock. Well, and that would make sense then why it's TBD on time and TV designation. Um, although, I mean, they could, they could move it to ESPN Plus and be a, a late tip-off because then who cares? So it'll be ESPN. If it's going to be on ESPN, it'll be an early game because they don't want to cut into their own ratings for the college football playoff. We'll see Probably where this like 11 o'clock, more. 11 o'clock kick or 11 o'clock tip. Well, uh, I don't know. Maybe we may not even have to worry about it. Maybe, maybe we'll be in, in, I don't know, Glendale for the, the Fiesta Bowl because K State's getting ready to kick off in the semifinal against Georgia or something. So 
I thought we said that wasn't happening earlier in the show. Uh, well, we can dream. You got to keep everybody on their toes. Uh, other notes about the Big 12 schedule that was released. Then after West Virginia at home, K-State will go for the week to Texas. They will play in Austin on January 3rd. That's a Tuesday. And then the Wildcats will uh, very quickly get Jerome Tang his return to Waco because they will play Baylor, the third conference game of the season, at the Farrell Center January 7th. Uh, before coming back to face Oklahoma State. Other notable games, uh, and maybe this one just because you can make a quick road trip if you wanted, they play a Saturday game at TCU. Um, other ones, I'm trying to look out for the people if they want to hit the road. A Saturday game at Oklahoma State in late February. So those are good opportunities uh, if you want to travel a little bit. And then the first KU game of the season will be January 17th. It's a Tuesday in Manhattan. It will be a six o'clock tip off. Typically, this has been either a seven o'clock ESPN plus or like an eight o'clock one of the linear ESPN channels. So a nice early six o'clock tip against the Jayhawks, which will be very nice. Uh, and then other notable uh, games, the return trip to Lawrence will be a seven o'clock tip on Tuesday, January 31st with the Jayhawks. K-State's final home game of the year will be Wednesday, March 1st against Oklahoma. And then they will bookend their Big 12 season by playing at West Virginia on March 4th. So there you have it. It's a tough opening slate. Well, I think, you're going to find I mean, that there's really not much of a breather in the Big 12. No, I mean, I'm coming from, no, I mean, I'm coming from the Big 10. I understand how it goes too, but I mean, especially if you look at Otzelberger made Iowa State good again, and all of a sudden you can't take Iowa State for granted in this league. I mean, if you look at their first six games, um, they play West Virginia in Manhattan. That's a winnable-ish game. Mm -hmm. um, then they have to travel down to Texas and play the Longhorns. Texas is a team I'm high on. They're top 15 team, probably conservatively. Might flirt with the top 10 at points in the year. Then you're obviously going to play at Baylor, like you said. That's never easy. Then you come back home and play Oklahoma State. Mike Boynton's done a good job with that program. Obviously, the year with Cade Cunningham is memorable, but that's a respectable opponent. That's a tough game. That's probably a game that Kansas State would like to win if they want to get into the tournament. But then you have to go back down to Texas against a TCU team that's supposed to be really good. I mean, they return all five of their starters this year. That's going to be a tough matchup for them. But then you're given no favors because then you have to come back home and play the reigning national champions in Kansas. So I think their first six are really, really tough. Yeah, it's a tough go of it. And it's, it, it is weird, I, I would say, to have the kind of the yo-yoing back and forth between Texas um, to go at Texas, at Baylor, home against O-State, and then back at TCU. Like, I mean, it's not like it's tough and they would have been traveling anyways, but it's just kind of a weird one. So we'll see how it goes. Those are a couple of notes there. Um, later, in the, later on in, in within the next week, Gabe will have a better breakdown of the, the basketball schedule. Other notes on the uh, basketball schedule real quick. Earlier in the week, it was announced that the Wichita State game on Saturday, December 3rd, will tip off at 8 o'clock in Manhattan. So that is a late tip time. Um, but again, that's another big football day because K-State's probably going to be in Arlington for the Big 12 championship. So I don't know what the situation will look like there. I'm just Look, I, I feel like I've been – Far too negative for just one game this week, and I need to try and insert you know a little bit of a balancing act, a little bit more mojo for everybody. So I'm just trying to, to keep everything uh, positive. I like it. Uh, other notes, 
the trip to Butler on Wednesday, November 30th. A nice 5.30 p.m. tip. You don't get many 5.30 p.m. tips uh, during the week, but well, that that's is exactly what you're going to get. Though, Butler time. Indianapolis is on Eastern time? I believe so. Yes, actually, I know for a fact that it is. Hmm. It is definitely an Eastern time. Part of Indiana is and part of Indiana is not, and Indianapolis is Eastern time. I guess I've never been to uh, Indianapolis or around there, so I don't don't know where exactly. It's like the it's like the middle of the state. Yeah, I guess it is fairly far over there. I kind of forget that uh, Illinois is there. Well, I think we need to make that trip, uh, and also then, uh, like I don't know, do something really fun out of it. We could roll through Champaign, so I could see your stomping grounds. Cams, baby, I'll take you to Cams. What's that? It's a bar on campus. Oh, okay. All right. We can well, stop in Champaign if we'd like. We can stop and see what the Illinois basketball schedule looks like. Maybe we'll be in town. Oh, that's a good call. I would I would I would like to get on that. I mean, so what K State will play. Oh, they'll have like they'll have a week off because that'll be the week after Thanksgiving. Yeah. So they'll be they won't have a basketball game. Now I guess there will be a football game to worry about on Saturday. Uh, but then shoot, get after it. Get on the road and see what uh What's going on? I, I'm interested in this now because I love I love a good sports road trip. I so, love sports road trips too, and I will also tell you that Champaign isn't very far away from Indianapolis. It's only an hour and a half drive, so that's a bonus bonus too. Perfect. Uh, I've got my, the best man of my wedding uh, lives in Valparaiso, Indiana. Yeah, I've, really. So I've been to Valpo before. Uh, let's see. Uh, so what? That's November 30th. Uh, ooh, would you look at this? November 29th. Syracuse at Illinois. ACC Big Ten Challenge, baby. Let's ride. Wow. We might have yeah. to. I'm kind yeah, of I down, would, Mason. Let's do I it. I would I'll... love to go harass Jim Beheim and his kids. I so. am so down to do this. Get tickets, show you the house of pain, as they like to call it. Why do they call it that? Champagne. Oh, okay. I gotcha. You that see makes sense. I, you, see the, you see the word play there? Yeah. Uh, 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 whatever. I'll, I don't know. I'm okay. Well, I'll show up to support Brad Underwood. How about that? Well, K State people do have a strong affection for Brad Underwood, from what I've understood. He's he is a legend. A- anybody connected to, well, <laughs> to I mean, average like 1.8 points a game in his career. Don't disparage his playing career. It's not, coach. it's so much more than the playing career of Brad Underwood. It's, you know, he's a Kansas guy, um, even though it's McPherson, so we'll give him a pass for that. But, like, you know, he he played at K-State, even if it was barely. And on top of that, then, anybody connected to the Frank Martin era at K-State is going to be, like, a 95% approval rating from the fans. Like, you you cannot say anything bad about the Frank Martin era at K-State because it reinvigorated basketball uh, in Manhattan and Frank is like a, a cult hero, and anybody that was with him during that time is a hero as well. So don't disparage Brad Underwood's playing career because it's so much more than that. Okay, I won't. I won't. Brad likes to make fun of his own playing career, which is really funny too. So, well, who had a better playing career, him or his kid? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, Tyler Underwood. I love Ty. Ty and I actually have a good relationship. Uh, Ty actually played a pretty, not like important role, but like an integral role in some of the early teams in Illinois that Brad had that weren't very good. He used to have to come in because they had no ball handlers. I see that. He, yeah, he played in a total of 
17 and 14 games the first two seasons at Illinois. That's yeah, that, it's kind of insane that he yeah. would. He's on staff yeah. now as a recruiting director. Um, he and uh, he and Bryant Reeves' kid, uh, Trey Reeves, were were both bench warmers uh, at Oklahoma State together. They were like uh, they were probably the most notable duo of walk-ons in the Big Twelve. Well, I think Tyler played at three schools because I think he was on. Uh, I guess it would only. Uh, yeah, I think he was on the roster at SFA. Oh, he may he may have been. I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to go double check his his career profile page. But yeah, Tyler actually played a somewhat integral role on some of those early Illinois teams. He wasn't ever very good. Um, obviously, athletically was limited at that level, but he did contribute positively on various points. All right, so we've now we've now made up our mind um, that we will be we will be going and stopping in Champaign on the 29th and then going to Indianapolis on the 30th. I love this. So I'm, 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 I'm good with that to, to see how everything else uh, is going to play out now. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to tell my wife yet because she'll be like, I don't know about that, but I'm definitely uh, going to have this in my back pocket and find a way to make this happen. I'm all for this. I'm really going to miss going to games. This is, so. This is uh, this is tough here. You're you're more so from this area. I don't know Indiana geography. Uh, how far is it from Bloomington to Indianapolis? Um, probably about two hours, I would say, an hour and a half, two hours. Um, let me look here. Okay, so I, shout out to Google <laughs> at this time. They play North Carolina. That's why I'm looking. Oh wow! On the same day as case that, that'll Butler. be a, that'll be a pricey ticket though. Okay. Um, it's an hour and a half from to Indianapolis to, that be sweet. to Bloomington. So that's not going to work out probably an hour nine. Yeah. I was, I was, so unless they're tipping off at like 10 o'clock or they play like during the day on a Wednesday, we're, we're not going to make that one happen. No, that's unfortunate. That's a great place to go see a game though. So, all right. Well, there was the, the, it may just be a two stop trip, but it's going to be fun by golf. What are the boilers doing? What is, what's Purdue doing at this time? No, uh, well, so I'm, I'm, here's the thing I'm concerned about this. Feels like we're, we've gotten lucky so far where two teams I've looked up have actually been at home. Um, Purdue. nobody actually, nobody actually cares about this right now. I don't think, unless, unless you're wanting to try and go on this, this trip with you us. You can hop along if you're listening and you subscribe to the website. We'll take you along in your own car like you'll have to make the trip yourself but yeah you can <laughs> you can show up and like figure it out and I'll, I'll tell you where we're sitting um uh so yeah i figured they'd have to be on the road they are november 30th they play at florida state that's so, too bad yeah because Mackey arena is an awesome place to go see a basketball game do you uh you know you've probably heard a lot about uh the legendary gene katie right uh not a ton but yeah a good amount of gene katie love in West Lafayette, Indiana, which is not one of my favorite towns. You know where he's from? Is he from Kansas? Yeah, Larned, Kansas. You know where he, he played college basketball at? Kansas State. Kansas State, baby, 1956 <laughs> and 1958. That's so, so long ago. He was uh, also – so he's got – I mean, he's got a ton of ties to the state of Kansas. So he, from Kansas, he played at Garden City Community College. He was a Bronx buster. And then uh, played at K-State. And then after that, he got his start in collegiate coaching in my hometown of Hutchinson at Hutchinson Community College. Okay. Shout out to the Blue Dragons. He was the head coach there for, uh, from 1966 to 1974 uh, before he ultimately ended up as an assistant in Arkansas 
and then he uh, kicked off his coaching career and and went on from there. And former K State basketball coach Bruce Weber loves Gene Cady. So he was on staff at Purdue. That's where he kind of like cut his teeth. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, Gene Cady's like a like a, a a golden figure to to Bruce Weber. So six time Jayhawk conference champ Gene Cady. All right, I like it. There you go. So all right, well that's uh that's that's enough talk about just random crap to finish up the show today. I'm sure everybody is now really fired up for K-State and Oklahoma to uh, go out and play each other. I don't like, I don't think the cats win, but I do think that they are going to be a little bit more competitive. And I, I guess I just say that because I think that there is too much talent from Adrian Martinez that he doesn't find a way to kind of force himself to play better. But if things don't look very good in this game against Oklahoma, um, that is going to be a very, very unique environment against Texas Tech next weekend in Manhattan. And I would imagine we will have a very, very interesting conversation prior to that uh, to recap what took place in Norman because there are going to be a lot more questions uh, surrounding K-State football moving forward. Yeah, we'll have to see how everything plays out. I'm excited to get down to Norman and experience one of, I guess, what many would call the cathedrals of college football for the first time. It is one of the Big 12 locations that I have never been to. I mean, well, I've been to I've been to Norman. I've seen a basketball game there, but I've never seen a football game uh, in Norman. So that will be a treat tomorrow, I'm sure. We'll see uh, what the final outcome ends up being, and then follow along with us all day long on email online, and we'll have plenty of coverage throughout the day for you there, and uh, all the way through the night, since it'll probably be a pretty late evening getting everything taken care of uh, there at Memorial Stadium before things finish up. It's a real shame that we don't have like uh, some kind of road trip we can go on tonight to where there's a college football game at like, you know, if Oklahoma State was playing like a Friday night game, that would have been kind of fun, uh, but they're not. So no. we're, we're going to settle for uh, seeing the, the future of K-State football Avery Johnson this evening. Uh, yeah. As, as Mays is in town, they will play. I guess real quick, and if you haven't seen it yet, uh, we've got an update with John Randall up on EMA online. I went out to Heights last night, saw him play, and uh, what his team was able to do. He had an impressive night, three touchdowns. They won 61-7, to seven, and he kind of talked about some of the things uh, going on with his recruitment right now. Uh, he said he was excited for the, the future at some point. He'll get back up to Manhattan this year, wants to see some more than just the football side of it, wants to kind of get a, a better vibe for Manhattan and everything that goes on there. So, uh, so some good news there, and I, I do think things are probably trending in the right direction for K-State, for John Randall. But he, he did say that he uh, enjoys when he gets to talk to the Utah coaches, which I thought was fascinating, and he's got a visit coming up to Michigan uh, in the very near future. So we'll see. We'll see where things go there. I'm excited to follow that recruitment. It seems like it's pretty well kept, and I like the recruitments that not everyone kind of knows what's going to happen before it happens in the end. That is certainly a good point. Like I, it, it is impressive in like this day and age where you kind of know everything with a lot of these guys, and it's so open. Like um, Michaela Rich, for example, on the basketball side, he's announcing three days from now. So on the twenty sixth, he will make an announcement as to where he's going to play. A lot of people, including myself, believe that it's K State, and a lot of those conclusions can get drawn by like social media activity and everything else. John Randall Jr. is not like that. You, you don't get a lot. I mean, it was it was really like up to the wire on if he was going to be in Manhattan for the visit against Missouri, and then he just kind of sends out a, a quick little like, 
tweet. And it's like, okay, he is there, but there really wasn't a ton else to go from. So it is kind of fun and unique. He's a really good dude to talk to as well. So uh, I certainly think if he ends up in Manhattan, people would really enjoy John Randall because he'd be obviously a fantastic talent for them to add. So it'll be a lot of fun to keep tracking along with that. And we'll continue to have updates with everything that goes on with that on email online. We'll hop off. We'll get done with this. uh, So Alec can get ready to hit the road, make his way down to Sedgwick County to, uh, to check out Mays tonight with me and see Avery Johnson. And uh, he's got some pretty good teammates there as well that will help him out. And then uh, we'll be on the road to Norman tomorrow morning and be ready for the Wildcats and the Sooners. Seven o'clock kick on Fox tomorrow night. Jason Benetti uh, and uh, and Brock Heward on the call. Any thoughts on that broadcast team? I'm a Benetti guy. so Everyone's a Jason Benetti guy. I love Jason Benetti. Okay, that's good to know. Um, I'm not going to call anybody out, but I've, I I know one guy that is not a Benetti and Heward duo guy. He does not like them. So All right. Well, he's wrong, but... He's wrong. There are are a few people out there like that. So that'll do it for us. We're out. We'll see you.